Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome once again to Connect Church Online. As always, it is such a blessing, a privilege, and honor to be with you and to be able to unpack God's Word with you this morning. If you're with us for the first time, we are in a series called The Tough Questions, where we are looking at some of the tough questions asked of the Christian faith. And these questions are not only asked by non-Christians, but by believers themselves. And this morning is no different. The question this morning is, how can bad things happen to good people? More specifically, how can a loving, caring, genuine, gentle God allow bad things to happen to good people? You might not have asked this question yourself, but I'm almost certain you know someone who has and may still be wrestling through this question in their life. You know, whether it's disaster that strikes or the untimely death of a loved one, whether it's disease that takes hold of someone you care about or divorce in a family, these things tear and sear our hearts with pain. And it causes us at times to question the moral character and goodness of God. And for some people, the suffering and pain is so severe that they even question the very existence of God himself. You know, God's word says to us as believers that we need to be able to give a reason for the hope that we profess. To be able to answer people's questions with tenderness and love. And give them a reason for why we still have faith the way that we do in a loving God the way that we do. And so this morning... This is a real attempt to, to not fix the problem and to, and to solve everybody's emotional issues because of what they're going through, but an attempt to give a loving, sensitive answer to the very real questions people ask to help steer people in a direction where they can experience wholeness and healing and to work through this question and come out the other side, realizing that pain and evil does not disprove God and God exists as a loving, caring, faithful God who loves them and cares about them regardless of the circumstances and situations they find themselves in. So we're going to be answering two questions very broadly. And I realize that giving a, an, an academic or an intellectual answer to a very real heart issue can sometimes do more injustice than anything else. But what often ends up happening is the enemy jumps on board where there's pain and suffering and he causes great distress and great harm. And it's often not recognized the poison that he brings and the claws that he sinks into someone's life as a result of pain that they may have experienced may not be directly the enemy's fault, but he loves to get involved. And in answering these questions, we disarm the enemy. And we sometimes, in a sense, remove the poison from the wound and help people to, to heal. And so these questions and answering these questions is an attempt to give you and myself tools to be able to engage with people and to help them through uh, whatever it is that they're facing. The pain and suffering that they've gone through that will cause them to question, one, the existence of God and two, his goodness. So the first question this morning is really the easier one to answer, and it's often given as a statement, uh, and the statement is this, God cannot possibly exist because evil does. <clears throat> That's often used by agnostics or atheists. They would say that the existence of God is disproved because of the existence of evil. Now, if you want to read really more in depth on this, uh, there's a book written by the late Rabbi Zacharias called Can Man Live Without God? He answers this question thoroughly. It is an exceptionally good read. I would suggest you go and get it. Can Man Live Without God by Rabbi Zacharias. But essentially, a really good place to start with somebody who denies the existence of God because they acknowledge the existence of evil is to start with the acknowledgement of evil. And that might sound weird, but this is pretty much how it works. If somebody acknowledges the fact that there is evil, by default they are acknowledging that there is good. 
Because they're able to tell the difference between evil and good, there is a moral framework, a, a moral compass in a sense, that they are using with which to be able to distinguish between the two. It then stands to reason that if there is a moral compass that we have and a, and a moral framework that we are employing to distinguish between good and evil, there must be a moral framework giver. The question then is, who gives the moral framework? And Howard preached a wonderful message last week on who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. And ultimately the answer is this. The only being that is supreme, powerful, uh, who is supreme and is all-powerful and has all authority to be able to give to all of mankind for all time a framework with which to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong is God himself. Because God himself is the one who gets to decide what's right and what is wrong. What God says is right is right. What God says is wrong is wrong. And so if we acknowledge that there's evil, we acknowledge that there's good. If we can tell the difference, we acknowledge that there's a framework with which we're able to distinguish between the two. And if that framework exists, which it does because we're able to tell the difference between good and evil, there must be a framework giver. Can you imagine if it was up to mankind, if it was up to people to design a framework, a moral framework, which every single human being throughout all of time should apply? to their lives. It would be chaos. Chaos would ensue. There would be absolute anarchy where people get to decide what is right and wrong and then tell other people to adhere to that framework. Chaos ensues. Wars break out. Destruction happens because we cannot agree because of our broken sinful natures and we are so subjective in our reasonings. Only God is able to give a universal moral framework to human beings for all time, for all people. And God's word has said that he's impressed this on our hearts. You know, it says in Romans chapter 2, 14 to 15, indeed, when Gentiles do, uh, sorry, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. What Paul is saying is this, that the Gentiles may not have God's written law. In other words, they may not have the Ten Commandments or the Torah or the Old Testament to see and to know what God wants them to do and what God says is good and what God says is evil. But God's law has been printed on their hearts from birth. There's this innate sense that we all have from birth. When God knit us together in his mother's womb, he seared his law onto our hearts. And we have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. That's why it says that their consciences accuse them and even defend them. Because from birth, there's this innate sense of what's right and what's wrong. And so your conscience will lead you in the right direction. And if you listen to that, well, then that's a good thing. If it's telling you not to do something and you do it, well, then your conscience condemns you. And so no one has an excuse. We have this framework from birth and we all adhere to it. And there are so many things that are of God and what God says is right that all mankind agree on. And there are so many things that are wrong that God says is wrong that all mankind agree on. We might not all be believers. We might not all be Christians. We might not all have a faith. But there is a common thread that exists in the hearts of all men that have ever existed. And that's this impression that God has put on our hearts of what is right and what is wrong from birth. And so we have this moral framework because we have a moral framework giver. We're able to know what is right and what is wrong because of the framework that has been given to us. And so in a very weird way, evil and the existence of evil doesn't disprove God. In fact, it is used more to prove the existence of God. 
than to disprove it. And it's more the moral framework that we have that enables us to tell the difference that speaks to the giver of the moral framework and proves God's existence. So the argument that evil disproves God is really a non-argument. It's trying to invoke a moral law without acknowledging a moral law giver. It's just not possible. The second question is a little bit more difficult to answer, and that is the question of God's goodness. You might have some people who go, I really believe in the existence of God, but I'm not too sure that he's a good God. How can he be good if there's so much pain and evil in this world? How can God allow it? And I'm going to try and answer this question by touching on a number of different points. And the first one is this. You know, we live in a world where genuine love and expressing genuine love is possible. In other words, it's possible for me to express and to feel genuine love and to display genuine love. And it's also possible for me to receive genuine love and to experience genuine love. And that is only possible because God has given us free will. You see, genuine love is only possible when we have the opportunity to choose to do it or not to do it. In a world where genuine love is a very legitimate expression and is able to be expressed legitimately, there must be the possibility to choose not to do it. It's the reason why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil into the Garden of Eden and told Adam and Eve not to eat it. It wasn't to taunt them or to in some way punish them or tease them. It was to set up some boundaries of what was right and what was wrong. And God says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Don't do this. If you don't do this, you'll be proving that you're choosing to love me. And they chose not to be obedient to God. But the choice was given so that their choice not to eat would be a display of their genuine love for God. If the tree was not there and that opportunity to choose evil was not there, they would have only had the opportunity to do what God had set out for them to do. And it would have been a very robotic love and a very robotic obedience. So God desires genuine love and so do we. If someone says that they love you, you appreciate those words and they are deeply meaningful because they've chosen to give them. But if you found out that that person was coerced or in some way forced to say those words, if they were held at knife point or at gunpoint and were forced to say, I love you, and you found out about it, all of a sudden those words would have lost their meaning. And so we live in a world where free will exists. But unfortunately, as much as we have the opportunity to choose good, we also have the opportunity to choose bad. As much as we have the opportunity to love, we also have the opportunity to not love. And those options and that choice is necessary. Free will to choose between those two is necessary in order for genuine love to be expressed. And that means in a world where free will exists and genuine love can be expressed, there's also the opposite that can be experienced. People can choose to be not loving, can choose to do things that are ungodly and destructive and result in hurting themselves and in others. And then the question might be, well, why doesn't God stop them from making the bad decision? And then that would just come back down to, well, then that would be removing their free will. That would be stopping them from doing something that they are choosing to do. And God does not want robots. He wants people who genuinely express love for one another and for him. 
And it also speaks to this idea that God really values genuine love. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate the potency of and the power and, and the glory of the ability to be able to love God genuinely. See, God could remove our free will. He could take it away, but then that would stop us from, in that, from being able to experience genuinely loving Him. And genuinely loving God is worth more than anything else. It's worth more than even removing the pain and the hurt and the suffering that we sometimes experience. In other words, God allows the bad stuff that comes with having free will. He allows it because, because experiencing the good that comes from free will far outweighs any of the bad that we could possibly experience. And it may not seem like that at times, but it is truth. It is true that to genuinely love God, to choose to love Him, is such a blessing, such an honor, that it far outweighs any of the negatives we could possibly experience. You know, God is a God of love. Paul writes, he says, you can have all the gifts in the world. You can have all the spiritual gifts and be so good at using them. But if you have not love, you're a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. You have nothing. God is a God of love and he loves genuine love. And we love to be genuinely loved. And so free will is necessary for that to happen. And along with free will comes the opportunity and the possibility of evil. And so that's why God allows it because he appreciates and values genuine love so much. He allows the free will to happen and so, in a sense, allows the possibility for evil. The other point that we need to touch on is that not everybody is good. Not everybody is good. So free will exists and as a result of that, there is evil in the world. But free will is necessary for genuine love. But there's also a flaw in the question. How can... Uh, bad things happen to good people. It's funny that this is the thing that gets us most of the time, you know, because we recognize bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people, and that grates us sometimes. But what's really getting us most of the time is that bad things happen to good people. But the question is this When last were you good? And what does it mean to be good? Now, I had to think about this for my own life. You know, was I good yesterday? Was I good today? Was I good last week, last month, last year, last decade? You know, we often have this way of comparing ourselves to other people and deciding that we're good based on our own experiences and judging ourselves against somebody else and using the moral framework that God has given us with which to distinguish between what's good and what's bad and then going, okay, well, we're not as bad as that or as bad as that person. We're, 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 we're not perfect, but we're not Hitler or we're not Stalin, or we're not the murderer locked in Polesmoor. We have this ability to sort of position ourselves and judge ourselves socially by looking at other people around us. And so good for us sometimes sits on this sliding scale, and we determine what is good by um, other people's behavior, our own experiences, and sometimes even our own strongholds. But, but, but what happens if the standard for goodness is God? What happens if to be good means to be God? Then no one is perfect. And according to Romans 3.23, it says, All people have sinned. No one is good. All fall short of the glory of God. And as a result, life isn't perfect. It's because of this very thing that we use our free will sometimes to do bad stuff. 
Romans 6.23 goes on and says, The wages of sin are death. And none of us like what our sin causes us to deserve. But because we are not good, only God is good, we reap the rewards of our sinful nature. Now that is not to suggest that every bad thing that has or will ever happen to you is your fault or a punishment from God or something that you deserve. It is simply making the point that there's a flaw in the question, how can bad things happen to good people? Or how can a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? The thing that's really more unbelievable is that a good, perfect and holy God allows good things to happen to bad people. And by bad people, I mean all of us. No one is good according to God's standards. Psalm 136 verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Mark 10, 18 says, it's Jesus actually um, answering somebody who called him good teacher. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In wrestling with this tough question of how can a good God allow bad things to happen to good people, imagine if we saw ourselves for who we really were in desperate need of redemption and wholeness and healing, and that we were broken and often the brokenness we experience is a result of our own sinful actions. Imagine if we took the focus off of us being good and instead focused on God being good. Imagine if we wrestled with this idea of how can a good God love me so much and do such good things for me. Imagine if we focused on God being good. Imagine if we focused instead on the fact that in every situation, he remains the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's not a liar. He never changes. He's totally faithful all the time. It may not make things easier, but it would certainly help adjust our perspective when we are looking at what's going wrong in this world, evil that we face, suffering that we experience. Instead of feeling sorry for ourselves, instead of feeling like we don't deserve this, Instead of focusing on the negative all the time, we look and we see through the circumstances we are in to a God that loves us and who's done so much good for us. And we go, God, despite our circumstances, we know that you're good. I'm not good. You are good. And I trust you. It would change our perspective. And like I said, it might not fix the hurt. And I want to undermine any of the hurt and pain you may be feeling. But it would certainly help shape and shift our perspective toward focusing on God the way that he intends us to. Remember, no one is perfect. No one is good. But God alone. God's word keeps our focus there. And keeps our attention there. The next point that I would touch on is that God... Uh, has has allowed free will obviously to to uh, to exist so that genuine love can god has revealed to us that he is perfect and good and we shouldn't assume that we are good but because of all of this god has recognized the possibility of pain and evil that exists and has prepared us god has shown his love for us and has shown his goodness to us despite pain and evil in this world by preparing us for what's to come like a good father does for his children prepares them for what to expect so that they are ready. God has through his word shown us what to expect. His love is seen in the fact that he prepares us to, to, to deal with pain and with suffering and he redeems through pain and suffering. You see, if suffering was just suffering for suffering's sake, 
it would be a different story. But God uses the pain and the suffering that comes as a result of our brokenness and the free will that we have to express ourselves. And he redeems and there's a redemptiveness that comes through pain sometimes that speaks to the glory of God and his goodness and shapes and molds us to become men and women that he desires for us to become. And so that's why God allows sometimes as well pain to exist and to remain, for evil to remain because it not only is just evil and pain and suffering, Sometimes through that, good stuff can come. And so with our Father's goodness inside, we need to hold hope and know that God overcomes the world. There's so many scriptures that speak about pain and suffering and the redemptive process that God took people on through that that led to so much good stuff. Isaiah 43, despite what Isaiah and the people were going through at that time, promises that God will be with them. Psalm 34, 19, God assures his deliverance. In 2 Corinthians 1 and 4, 1, chapter 1, verse 4, it speaks about this ministry opportunity we have to give to others, to comfort others based on the, consul, the, um, the consolation and, 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 and love that we've received from God ourselves. So many people in the Bible faced difficult times and God used their pain to reveal His glory. You know, sometimes, like I said, and this is not to undermine what you're going through, but we can feel so sorry for ourselves because of what we're going through and focus so much on the bad instead of focusing on the good that can come out of that. And God is more concerned about our character than he is about our comfort. God is more concerned about who we're becoming and who we will be in eternity than who we want to be here and how comfortable we want to be here. Sometimes we don't understand it, but God has a higher purpose and a higher reason for pain. And so he allows it to happen because he sees the refining process. And we have that free will opportunity to choose to allow him to do that or to choose to turn away and harden our hearts. Noah endured the flood and the loss of all of those around him. Joseph is a perfect example where he says to his brothers afterwards, after they sold him into slavery and left him for dead, he says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God's word says that he works for the good of those who love him. Jacob's sons endured famine. Ruth's husband died. Hannah faced infertility and the teasing of other women. There was a man who was demon-possessed. There was a little girl who died due to an illness. A woman who was crippled for 18 years. Stephen was stoned to death. And yet out of all of this, God was glorified and people's lives were shaped and refined. The ultimate example of suffering in the Bible is one that continues to bring hope and restoration to people. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus. At first glance, obviously, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is a travesty beyond measure. And, 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 and it really is. An innocent man, a perfect man, God himself murdered for the sake of others. However, God uses the suffering for hope and to bridge the gap between sinful humans and his perfection. Jesus stood sinless, yet he suffered and offered his body on behalf of us so that we might find forgiveness and be reunited to our Father in heaven. Imagine if Jesus said, God, how could you have allowed this to happen to me? How could you have allowed me to suffer this way? I don't want to suffer. I don't want this pain. 
I don't want to journey this road. I don't want to be refined this way. I don't want to have to sacrifice. This is just too much. I don't understand. You can't be a good God. You can't love me. Imagine if that had happened. I wouldn't be here today. Brothers and sisters, moms and fathers in the faith wouldn't be here today. But Jesus understood that there was a redemptiveness that can come out of pain and suffering, a refining and a beauty and a rising out of the ashes, in a sense, that can come from pain that we wouldn't otherwise have experienced had there not been pain and suffering in our lives. Jesus uttered these words in Luke twenty-two forty-two: Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Sometimes, church, it's difficult to understand, but the will of God is to allow us to endure pain and suffering for the sake of character shaping and for a greater good that we cannot see or understand. It says this, he endured the cross due to the joy set before him. He endured so that we could have hope. You know, some of the greatest testimonies I've ever experienced in my life, some of the greatest ministry I've ever received from people have been Christians who have suffered and have suffered in a godly way and have come through sharing about the goodness and the testimony of God. The deepest moments of real impact in my life have come when I have witnessed loving, loving Christians suffer in a way that is so honorable. And that sounds crazy, but I look at a person's life and they're going through a really tough time and I expect them to shout out and to curse at God and to go, woe is me. But instead they go, God is good. God is faithful. That has ministered to me in ways that I cannot even explain. And I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. And if it wasn't for them going through those tough times, if it wasn't for them experiencing those deep heartaches and those chasms of deep darkness, I would never have got to see them live the way that they lived in those places and would never have been ministered to by them the way that they ministered to me. And some people don't even know that that's how they've spoken to me. But it has happened and I'm sure it's happened for you as well. So there's a redemptiveness in pain that is beautiful. And then the last point I want to touch on is this. You know, eternity is a perspective that we need to have. Yes, this world is a world where genuine love can be experienced and as a result, pain can also come. Yes, pain comes because we are broken people. Yes, we don't understand why God allows pain to exist sometimes and we understand sort of that um, there's a redemptive process and there's something good that can come out of it and often does come out of it and God's glory is seen in all of it. But there's also this perspective that we need to have that this world is not all that exists. And that's not all that there is for us as Christians. And when we have an eternal perspective, it helps us to to deal with what we go through here. We recognize that this world is broken and that it was not God's intent. We recognize that this world is broken because of our sinfulness. We recognize that God uses sinfulness and He uses brokenness for His glory and for our good. But we also keep our focus on eternity. We realize that this world is coming to an end. For the atheist and for the agnostic who deny God, they really do believe that death is it. It's all over. It's done. It's dusted. There's nothing more. To them, pain really has no meaning. Pain is just what it is. Pure, unadulterated suffering. There's no redemptiveness in it. There's no greater outcome. There's no hope for a life after this. But for the Christian... As someone wrote, this world in effect is just a thin ray of light from the great sunshine that is eternity and life in heaven with God. 
Some even argue or some would suggest when we speak about our faith and the hope we have for life after this, that Christianity is just a mere excuse or form of escapism from the harsh reality that is the finality of death. But really that's no more reasonable than arguing that atheism is just a mere excuse and escape from the harsh reality of judgment and the thought of spending eternity apart from God. Now, I realize that no sane, comprehending, healthy Christian would welcome suffering for suffering's sake. We don't want to suffer just for the sake of suffering. But the Bible makes it very clear that faith in Jesus does not guarantee a perfect life, only a perfect eternity. The Christian faith is often filled with danger, filled with suffering, filled with temptation and trial. But through it we are refined and God is glorified and we are shaped and molded into the people God wants us to become. And so in some way we need to embrace pain instead of question why it's happening to us. And like many of the early church fathers did, celebrate when it comes. Not for the sake of suffering itself, but for what suffering and pain do in us. Pain sharpens our attention. It draws us closer to the Father. Pain shouts out to God and causes us to shout out to God and draw closer to Him. And God does not desire to see His people suffering, but He desires to see us shaped and molded. And if I think about going to, to gym or getting fit or doing anything like that, um, that when you want to get fit and really good or build muscle, pain is involved. Pain is involved. Suffering is involved. Right? There's all sorts of funny sayings of guys who go to fitness and other like uh, sweat is just your fat crying and pain is weakness leaving the body. You know, we, we come up with these funny sayings because we recognize there is pain involved in getting fit and building stuff. If there was no pain, there would be no gain, some people say. No pain, no gain. There's sacrifice that needs to be made in order to achieve things and sometimes it's painful. And we need to recognize that that's true for our spiritual life as well. It's not always going to be smooth and plain sailing. You never be tempted Never be tried, never be tested, never be refined, never be made stronger. And this is exactly what it says in 1 Peter 1, 6-8. In all this you greatly rejoice, he says, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So church, there it is. God is a good, loving God who isn't the source of your pain, who isn't the source of evil, but who uses evil and who uses pain and who uses suffering to refine us, to grow us, to shape us. The pain and the suffering experience isn't evident that God is not loving. What comes out of pain and suffering, if we allow God to use it for good, is evidence of how great and good and godly and caring and loving He is. Remember, our free will is there so we can experience the greatest thing possible, that is genuinely loving each other and genuinely loving God. But because of that free will, pain comes in. Pain comes in because we use our free will because we're not perfect and we're not good. And because of that, we experience pain. But God redeems through pain. He shapes and He molds through pain. And we understand that that is necessary because there's an eternity that's coming. It's not the end, this earth. And God wants us to be refined so that we can be who He's called us to be. And He's good and godly in the fact that He uses pain to shape us. Not just to allow it to be what it is 
for its own sake in the sense that we just suffer for the sake of suffering. God shapes us and molds us through it. So through pain, we are refined. Through pain, God is glorified. Through pain, God is able to bring hope and restoration. And through pain, God is always, always good. I want to end this morning by reading a, 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 a passage from an article that I was reading written by Michael Ramsden. And he's speaking on this issue of uh, pain and suffering and the fact that Christians uh, in the West particularly have an issue with it. And I wanted to read it and not paraphrase it uh, because I think he says it really well. He says this, Maybe the reason we question God's moral character when bad things happen is that we live our lives largely independent from God on a daily basis. In other words, we struggle to trust God in times of trouble because we do not really trust God when things are going well. Maybe we struggle with suffering so much in the West because we are so comfortable most of the time that we feel we don't need God. We don't rely on God on a daily basis and so we don't or we do not really know God. Sorry, let me read that again. We do not rely on God on a daily basis and so we do not really know God. When suffering comes along, therefore, it is not so much that it takes us away from God, but that it reveals to us that we have not really been close to God in the first place. As I said earlier, I have been, I've never been asked questions about God and suffering when I'm traveling in countries riddled with the realities of it. In fact, when I visit churches in parts of the world where they are faced daily with horrific affliction, I normally leave inspired. They trust God in everything, even when things are going well. When times are hard, they cling to God because they have already learned to trust. They have learned that God does not change, even when our circumstances have. Church, may you be blessed this Sunday. May you be encouraged. May you remember that despite the existence of pain, suffering and evil, God exists and he is good. May you be equipped. I pray that you have been given a few tools to be able to answer people and speak into their lives. May you do it with tenderness and gentleness, with respect and with love. Remembering always that we want to disarm the enemy, love the person and point them towards Jesus, the one who can really heal them. I'm really sorry that pain exists. I'm really sorry that you've gone through pain. As a church, we want to support you if you're in that place. But I want you to know that our God is good. He loves you and he can redeem and he's probably doing stuff that we can't even dream of or imagine in your life to shape you and to mold you into the person he wants you to become. And there's no greater glory than being called a son or a daughter of the living God and to have him say to you, you're a man or a woman after my own heart. Welcome into eternity, my good and faithful servant. One day when you see him and you hear those words, nothing you have been through will compare to that. That will be the greatest thing you could ever hear. And so I pray for a, a blessing. I pray for an anointing. I pray for a freedom. I pray for a healing over our lives. But I pray like Jesus prayed that his will would be done. No matter what it is, that his will will be done because his will will achieve his purposes, which are far better than any of ours for our own lives. Bless you. If you need prayer, if you need counseling, if there's anything you'd like to talk to us as a, um, as a pastoral team about, or if you'd like to talk to me about anything, please email me at roland uh, at connectchurch.org.za. Get hold of Michelle at the office. The church number will be on the bottom of the screen, 082 021 
phone the church, set up a meeting with a pastor. We'd love to meet with you and pray with you. You can engage with me on the sermon. Anything I might have said that was confusing, I'm happy to talk with you about it. Um, but, but, just, but just get hold of me. We love you. Bless you. I hope that this morning has been a blessing and it's made sense. Uh, and just want to trust everything that is of the Lord into His hands. And uh, we'll see each other again soon. Bye for now.